My name's Jim. I'm a compulsive overeater. I came into these rooms, I think, 25 years ago. I don't really know. I know that before I got here, Terrell was left on a basket wailing like a child, so he's always been here. But I came in after that, but the only people I know for sure that were here when I came in that I see now are Tony and Terrell. There are others. Josie says it's 1987, but I really don't know. What I know is this, what it was like when I came into program, I was filled with rage that I had no idea I was filled with. Uh, I was working in a job I hated for a boss I despised. Uh, I had a terrible relationship with my mother and I had a strained relationship with my three sisters. And my friends and acquaintances, most of them younger than I were, were dying right and left of AIDS and I couldn't stop eating. And... Um, I was, a, I was a primary caregiver for three of them. And the first one, before I came into program, I would be, and this was very early on where you had to wear hazmat to go. I don't know if any of you, some of you remember that. And um, I would be very brave and compassionate with my friends out at um, Sherman Oaks Hospital. And then I would eat all the way home. At first, I would just stop at 1711, and I would get a bag of candy and a bag of salt, you know, chips, and a Diet Coke, of course. <laughs> well, nobody relates to that, right? <laughs> and um, as it went on, I figured out, to, I lived in Hollywood right off the Coenga exit, and I would get on in Van Nuys, the, the Van Nuys uh, 101. As time went on, uh, I would get off at a second 7-Eleven and then a third. So I, I was raised Catholic, so I was practicing the stations of 7-Eleven. <laughs> uh, by the time my friend died, I'd gained 30 pounds. Um, I lost 20, and my next friend got sick. I went through the same ritual back to Sherman Oaks Hospital, back to the 7-Elevens, and I gained 30 pounds. And after he passed away, I lost 20, so I had a net gain of 20. And then my third friend, I had a third friend I was close to who got sick. I wasn't his primary caregiver, but I still gained weight. But then the third person that I was supposed to be a primary caregiver to, I couldn't stop. And uh, I had been at my goal weight before HIV AIDS came in. Uh, I'd gone to all the diet doctors. I decided as a gay man, I need, this is figure more, I needed to be attractive, and so I was disciplined. I went to the gym, I did all of that stuff with all of my friends who were dying, and I couldn't stop. And I didn't have another diet in me, I didn't have any more, I, I, didn't even, I don't know when they took speed off the market, but uh, that wasn't available anymore, so I came in here. <laughs> And I didn't know that was funny, but I guess it was. Um, I, I was I was Eskimoed in here by a client of mine. Uh, I used to represent actors, and she Eskimoed me in to a meeting in the San Fernando Valley. And I walked in, and there were, in my recollection, 500 people there. There were probably 30, but but it was safe, and I was anonymous. And I I'm so I decided I would begin this on my vacation. So I went to my first meeting on a Monday night, which was my first day of vacation, and I got a list of the meetings. So Tuesday, I thought they were all going to be like this. Tuesday, my second meeting was on Fairfax at the Jewish Women's Center. I think that's what it's called. And there were four old ladies and me. 
And she said, what we do is we go around and share. So each one of them shared, and they said, now it's your turn. And so I'm, I'm a good Catholic boy, so if somebody asks me to do something, I do it. And that was, that was when I discovered that day after day, different meetings, different kind of abstinence. I got abstinent immediately. Uh, my, my basic abstinence has never changed. I've added to it. But my basic abstinence was when I came to the rooms, uh, it was three meals a day, nothing in between, uh, no salted nuts or anything from planters, and no eating in my car no matter what. And even when I've broken my abstinence, I've never, uh, I've never had nuts since, and I've never eaten in my car in all that time. And right now, I have, um, I counted it and I've forgotten. I became abstinent again on December 27th, two and a half years ago. Uh, I lost my abstinence for one day. Uh, I was abstinent. My best friend has a now 97-year-old mother who I adore. And they, we always spend the holidays together. And as she's gotten more frail, she stays with me because she's on a walker and she can walk right across the hall to a bathroom, which my friend's bathroom is all the way to the other end, so she would stay with me. And on Christmas, she wants us all to be together, so Terry comes over Christmas Eve. They nosh and they graze and they're normal. And my 97-year-old friend weighs 98 pounds, and I've seen her put away uh, uh, a California pizza kitchen pizza with the works two weeks after she's out of rehab for nearly fracturing her hip and she doesn't gain a pound and I, I take her stuff because she's supposed to gain weight and by the time I got home from taking her home she'd eaten the slice of pie I bought her for dessert I ate two pieces of pizza and probably gained 40 pounds I don't know <laughs> it's just not fucking fair but that's the way it is my friend Nosh, so Christmas morning, you know, my three meals a day, they had eggnog. Well, I'll have eggnog with breakfast, sure. And they had everything out that they nibble on. And I did, and I realized about three in the morning on December 26th, I'd broken my abstinence. Uh, it's like that thing in the big, the big book. I started, and I had no idea. And at three in the morning, I realized I'd only had two meals on Christmas, but one of them lasted several hours. And that I'd, I'd grazed. I picked at things. They were picking at things. Uh, monkey see, monkey do. And, and I did. So I started over that day. Now I would like to jump to what it was like on... By the way, I've maintained my weight since being back in program within three pounds. The problem is it's about 40 pounds more than I want to weigh. Okay, but I've maintained it. God only knows what it would be if I weren't coming in these rooms. The other thing I need to tell you about what it was like is during about in 1997, I was diagnosed with cancer. And what I discovered, and I'm still being treated for cancer, and what I've discovered is that on a day-to-day -day basis, it is easier for me to be treated for cancer than to be a compulsive overeater. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I had to go to my doctor for my three months. I have to have blood work every three months to see if the numbers are staying down or if I need, you know, I've been through radiation. I've been through chemo. I had to go down Tuesday for my numbers and to have my blood test. And uh, on the way in to find out all this, I'm emptying my pockets. I'm putting everything out of there so that when I get weighed, you know, 
I mean, so, so this is what it's like. And I'm sure others of you who have chronic illness can probably share this with me, that you're dealing with what they call life-threatening, but this is what threatens my life. Okay? I just want you to know that. But what I've also learned, much to, I don't know if to my surprise, but to my great gratitude, the steps and principles of this program have been invaluable, priceless in managing the journey through a cancer diagnosis. Being able to go one day at a time, uh, being able to turn it over, being able to trust a higher power. I had been through all that for at least 10 years in program, so I had these tools at the ready. Um, so the principles and steps of this program are not limited to this. I just know that they're, they are a plan for life and they're a safety net for life. So, but now I want to read you what it was like. Oh, by the way, right now, I don't know if I told you, uh, my mom has passed away, but I made peace with her before she died. I have a terrific relationship with my sisters, their children and grandchildren. The work I do now, I love. And um, I'm irritable a lot. But I'm not angry very much. You know, I, I have like this low bubble of irritation that, that uh, is there a lot. But I'm not angry. And that's, those are things out of the program. But I want to read to you. I was doing my homework. I put my glasses back on. Uh, I was answering questions in the OA workbook at the direction of my sponsor. And I really despise writing. I, I can't tell you how much I don't like to write. Not just this, anything. Um, the question was, the first question for step three, this was August 27th, which is about two and a half weeks ago. In what ways am I willing to adopt a whole new attitude about weight control, body image, weight control, body image, and eating? And I typed this up because I can't read my writing. Um, this question ambushed me. I have no idea what whole new attitude there is. I don't have any idea how to recapture or reignite the enthusiasm and discipline I had when I was younger. Body image isn't even on my radar. My body is so misshapen and altered by medication and surgery and treatments that I can't imagine doing anything about my body image other than keeping clean, wearing clean and nice clothes, keeping my hair cut, etc. I don't look at my body. Since sexual activity is no longer an option or an interest because of the medications, I don't pay a lot of attention to my body image. I try to ignore it. I am more aware of the physical limitations from aging and excess weight. Weight control, I've made the same maintain the same weight within three to five pounds since I've been back in program. Ideally, and for optimum health, I should maintain a weight of 30 to 50 pounds less. I don't binge. I stick to three meals a day. I've cut out junk foods and danger foods. I really enjoy eating in good restaurants. It is the sensual pleasure that's left to me. I don't know about a new attitude. I just like to recapture the attitude I had in the past. And um, that was on a Monday night. And that was real, I, that question upset me, and I was really demoralized by it. And, but what I did, pretty much by rote, is I go to four, four to five meetings a week, mostly at 7.30 in the morning, at the Unitarian Church in um, Studio City. And the Tuesday morning meeting is the big book. And we go through it in particular, in a, spe, in a, in a specific order. And I walked in there completely demoralized, and and uh, and on my mind was I thought not only did I have to leave this meeting, I felt 
like completely incapable of it. I thought I was scheduled to lead the Saturday morning 7.30 meeting in Burbank last week. That was a mistake, and I don't have to do it till December. But I thought, I cannot get up in front of you. I just, I don't have anything to offer, and I don't have anything to say. And I know the tradition was I was secretary, so I'm supposed to be here. And I said I would. And, boy, did I not want to. Tuesday morning, and I'm going to give you her name because she gives her whole name in this program, Sherry Maher, the ABCs of Abstinence. She was leading the meeting that morning. That morning. Sherry, as she was speaking, I thought, she's saving my life. She's saving my life. She's saving my life. And in the course of her share, how many of you know Sherry? Yeah. And she's been very open about all this and has said within the rooms you can share. What Sherry and I share and what's made us close is she was diagnosed with cancer. I'd written about my misshapen image, and she shared that she'd had a massive a radical mastectomy on both of her breasts, and she looks great. She looks like, sort of like a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. I mean, she is, she's glamorous, she's vital, she's alive, and there she was, pitching the program while I was sitting in this place of, of um, hopelessness, really. And as she pitched, I thought, she's saving my life, she's saving my life. And I raised my hand during the meeting and I called and I said, you know, mostly when I come in here, I love to work, read the book, I love to speak eloquently about the literature, and I do. And I really do really inspiring pitches when I put my mind to it. But I said, today I'm hanging by a thread. I am just hanging by a thread. Uh, and I don't know what to do. I, I, have no, I, I have no willingness. I don't even know what willingness is right now. It's not that I'm not willing. I've lost touch with what willingness is. At the end of the meeting, a guy I've known almost as long as Terrell and, and Tony and Joe came in maybe a few months after I did, who I'm not close to at all, called from across this room, and there were 35, 30, Jim! He came over, he said, and he's loud, what are you doing for dinner tonight? I, I thought, usually I have clients in the evening, and I knew I didn't. I said, nothing. He said, you're having dinner with me, and I'm going... And I mean, he works a hard-ass program. I mean, I mean, when he pitches about it, sometimes he irritates me. <laughs> because I don't get angry anymore. I just get irritable. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, I said, okay, and we made an agreement to meet. I, I named a restaurant. I said, I live around the corner from it. Perfect. Uh, on my way, I, I checked my cell phone on the way home. Now, completely different personality. This woman who's in the meetings, who I adore, just adore. If I were straight, I'd probably have a crush on her. I still have a crush on her, okay. And she said, hi, Jim. You know, what's helped me is to text my food before every meeting. And, and if you want to text your food to me, that would be perfectly all right, honey. <laughs> and I texted every meal, starting with that breakfast, since that day. I went to the meeting. I went to dinner with, with the guy. And he was so gentle with me. And I watched him eat twice as much as I ate at dinner, and he's maintaining a weight and in great shape. And he was so supportive of me. I've heard people say a lot how 
these rooms are their higher power. And that's not how I would characterize my higher power because I have a, I have a different definition, but I completely understood what people mean because Sherry and these two other people, they lifted me out of hell. And actually, when I, I only get weighed at the doctor, so I've lost three pounds when I went on Tuesday, which was as exciting as the fact that my blood count is really good. Um, and so, uh, that, so what it's like now, from what it was like just two and a half weeks ago, is I have willingness back. I talk, I've always talked to my sponsor every day, but, well, five days a week, but I have my willingness back again. And I was completely powerless. I mean, I had no, no comprehension of how to get my willingness back. I really didn't. Um, I would have thought it would be 10 o'clock by now. Uh, but um, so that's what it's like for me now. I still go to meetings. I still um, have at least two commitments, you know, uh, service commitments. I sponsor four people. Couldn't be more different to four from each other. And in the midst of all of this, I mean, a hundred pounder asked me to be her sponsor. I'm thinking it should be mine. And uh, but that's how the program works. That's how it works. So. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asked questions, you do not need to identify yourself. The question is, if I struggle with feeling the absolute worst to feeling the absolute best, how do I struggle with right-sized? I know more about absolute worst than absolute best. I, I would say that. I would say good is good enough. Uh, and right-sized, um, okay, when I can look at this disease, at this addiction, as a grace, as a gift from God, I look at it as a tool for humility. Because if I didn't have this, I suspect I would be incredibly arrogant. I, I struggle with arrogance to some degree now, always have. Uh, uh, yesterday at a meeting, one of the women who I love says, you know, my mind is so quick. And it says restraint of pen and tongue. And I can't restrain my mind. I just I wish I could some days, but uh, because I am quick on my feet and smart, I've gotten myself in trouble with what is perceived and probably is arrogance. So uh, paradoxical as it may sound, this disease keeps me right sized. This disease keeps my feet on the ground uh, because I, I'm I come I came you know I came from a privileged background. I have a great education. Um, I have a beautiful home. I have all that stuff, and this keeps it real. So the question is, where do you, I think the lack of willingness came from, and where do you think it prevented it? Where could I have prevented it? Wow. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is lack of willingness uh, comes from feeling old and tired and wondering what difference it makes. 
I'm 71. Um, and I think that's part of it is how much do I, longer do I have to keep doing this? And no matter what I do, I'm not going to be 40 again. I'm not going to have a 40-year-old body or a 40-year-old energy. I'm just, I'm just not. And, and it get, that gets harder. It's harder to climb stairs as you get older knees and stuff like that and it's harder to do this in some ways for me as you get older um, what was the second part of the question prevention, prevention. Uh, that's that's um, I've never stopped going to meetings I I call my sponsor uh, what I'm doing that I've never done and I have no idea where this willingness came from. I've never texted my food ever. I don't even like to text. I tell people don't text me. I don't even know how to text. But my life depended on learning how to text. I learned how to text. And uh, that seems to be helping. What I'm having to do, by the way, I'm not one of those people that has a problem with white flour or sugar. Uh, I have a problem with foods that don't require spoons and forks. Uh, I can have ice cream in my house and forget about it. I can't have a bag of cookies in my house because it's too effortless. Uh, when my friends came over for Christmas, there were two pies in the house. It never occurred to me to get up and cut a slice of pie. But I can eat pie with a fork like a gentleman. And the first Friday that I started texting my food, and this is part of this disease, is because I've dieted all my life before I got into here, there are foods that I have this innate guilt about eating that are not foods that I binge on. They're not foods that, you know, take me over the edge. And the third night or fourth night, it was Friday night, and I was going to the theater with a friend, and we were eating a prefixed dinner at the, at the music center. And I looked up the, the menu, and it included a glass of wine and dessert. And all of my fat child guilt said, those are bad. But I knew I could have a glass of wine and not want to drink a bottle. And I knew I could have a dessert. And it took me till 10 minutes before I ordered to be willing to text that I was going to have a glass of wine and dessert. Even though those are not my binge foods, the willingness to do that and not hide it and not feel guilty about it. And by the way, I only ate part of the dessert. Uh, I was full. Uh, the willingness to do that and not be ashamed and embarrassed because I eat things that only thin people should be allowed to eat makes it possible for me to eat those things in a, in a reasonable, measured, and abstinent way. Uh, yeah, my abstinence today, I'll just tell you what, I, I still uh, three meals a day except I travel a lot. And I travel between time zones a lot, and so I've added a snack, an optional snack when I travel. I'm really clear about what those snacks are. They're not little snacks that come in a bag. They're a piece of fruit or a protein bar, something that I'm really clear this is a snack, and it's not junk, okay? But I don't often do that. And, and, and once I finish at night, uh, I've been relieved from... I don't think even without absence I've done any nighting. About seven or eight years ago, I added popcorn. 
Because what I realized is that the only time I have popcorn is when I go to the movies. So if I'm eating three meals a day, I have to make popcorn a meal. And as a compulsive overeater, if I'm going to make popcorn a meal, I have to order a bucket. And if I order a bucket of popcorn and then realize I finished it during the trailers, (laughs) this isn't good. And so I thought I've got to... I committed not to have popcorn. I haven't had any in six or seven years. It was for a while really hard to go to the movies because the smell of it, uh, you know, popcorn is one of those foods if I was going to be marooned on a desert island, that would be one of them I would want. No nutritious value, but God, I love it. Um, So I did that. I eliminated that. I've eliminated, and, and I eliminated for whatever reason, Pepperidge Farm. I haven't had any Pepperidge Farm products except their bread. They're raisin bread occasionally, but I haven't had any of their cookies or uh, goldfish or any of that stuff. I don't even remember when. But in the last year or so, I've added Nabisco and Lay's to that. And what happened after I added Lay's to it, I went home to visit my family, and my sister makes a killer cheese, uh, killer dip. And I knew she was going to make it, and I found myself at Whole Foods trying to find chips that weren't labeled Lay's. And then I realized, fuck it, it's chips, period. So, uh, it's been incremental, but the willingness to do that, interestingly, has been in this really dark period. I've been willing to clean up and make my abstinence stricter. So I've added uh, junk foods. I don't eat stuff out of bags anymore. I just, I simply can't eat things that come out of bags um, and most boxes. I can eat cereal out of boxes, but I, I weigh and measure. I have cereal some mornings. I weigh and measure. I weigh. I have, I have the portion says a cup. I have a cup. The milk says a cup. I know maybe the portion's half a cup. I forget, but I have whatever the portion is. I never knew that a portion of cottage cheese was half a cup. I just thought it was that tub because that's diet food. See, that's diet food, so it's free. But I can have that now with a cup of fruit, and I weigh. I've measured that for a long time. And I never used to weigh and measure anything. So those are some of the things that I remember that I've done. Okay. The question is, how do I sponsor? Well, these people are so different. The four people that are so different. um, One of them is so gung-ho to do everything that I kind of have to say, whoa, I can't go that fast. Another one, we have to start almost every time with, what's the matter? <laughs> and once we get that, because she works a really good program, she really does, and I just love her. But she, so we work with the fact that don't you get how good, you, how well you're working the program. Uh, the other, I have another one who has no discernible boundaries. I've, I've been looking a long time and I'm having trouble. I don't think he'd say if somebody said, would somebody be volunteer to be shot? Uh, I don't think he'd do that, but maybe if it was him or somebody else, he might. So I work with him about that. And with all those people, I have to be really, really gentle. And I, with uh, three of them, I work the steps regularly. The fourth one, it is a struggle to keep him working on the steps. But I work on the steps with him. Two of them. I guess now three. Three of them I get their food every day. Um, And the challenge for me in that is a lot of what they eat is so unappealing to me. I guess it's healthy. (laughs) 
I guess it's healthy, but they say stuff to me, and then they tell me what their trigger foods are, and I go, you know, I could, I guess. So, so it's really, I have no idea. It's really hard for me, unless they say I ate six boxes of something, I have trouble knowing what is healthy for them, except I know it's healthy for them to commit their food. And uh, some of them I see regularly, other because of their schedules I don't see regularly, but I talk to regularly. But we work the steps. And, and I, what I do is whenever my sponsor says you should be writing, I tell all my sponsees you should be writing. <laughs> my mother used to say, I'd never ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do. So, so three of my, well, two of my sponsees are wonderful at writing. One of them, it's like pulling teeth. And the other one, when he writes, he does really great stuff, but he has all these reasons why he doesn't have time to write. And some of them are valid. So. The question is, how has my spirituality morphed or evolved over the years and uh, from Catholicism, and if that's part of it? Okay. Uh, I, I, I despise the recovering Catholic. I think of myself as a post-institutional Catholic. <laughs> because I was educated by Jesuits, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, I, I have a really solid education. And, and the traditions, the spiritual traditions of the Catholic Church I love. The political traditions, the, the temporal traditions suck. And, but, but in program, I'll tell you what made the biggest difference. And I think it was in these rooms. Somebody said the most important word in the third step is care. Turn your will and your life over to the care of God. And everything changed then. It didn't say the judgment of God, the fear of God, the whimsy of God, any of those things. It said the care of God. And in that moment, I understood my higher power as caring. I trusted it in a way. I, it's not that I didn't think that. It's that I used to think I had to earn that. And in that moment, I knew that, no, I didn't need to earn it because the care was already there. It was me that had to say yes to the care. The other thing, and I think I'm not a big book thumper, but I think it's on page 54 or 56. Uh, see, in step 11, it says improve our conscious contact with God. And that sounds like sticking my finger in a socket contact. But in the book, it says uh, constant companionship. And I was raised Catholic, so we never heard what he walks with me and he talks with me. But that's the way it feels now. Uh, I, I have, I'm in a dialogue with my higher power a lot. I live alone. I'm in it a lot. And I, uh, I'll give you a crazy example. I was driving up to San Francisco a few years ago on Highway 5, which I think is boring, but I was in a hurry. And it was sprinkling, and there was this rainbow that was felt like it was playing hide-and-seek with me because i go around. But it wasn't a normal rainbow. It was fat, and it was thick, and it looked almost solid. It was just stunning. And about the third or fourth time, I, I saw it. I, I was alone in my car. I just said out loud, I think that's the best one you've ever done. Thank you for letting me see it. <laughs> and I wasn't being silly. I mean, I'm, I'm mature and sophisticated, but with God, I'm about 10. My higher power, I can kind of sit on my lap, his lap and feel safe, or hers. And 
that night, as it turned out, I was in an ER with internal bleeding, and they told me what well, I, I just barely made it. I could have died. And I'm in that I'm in the hospital that night. It's about four or five years ago, and I'm alone. My friend got me there in time. And I'm alone, and I thought about that rainbow, and I thought, if that's the last time, I'm out. If that's your last gift, good enough for me. That's who my higher power is. So uh, I don't earn it anymore. We're, we're, uh, it's, it's what it is. Um, oh, what, the other thing, I, I, I could write the um, Idiot's Guide to Emergency Rooms. I really could. <laughs> I was in five, six in five different cities in one year a few years ago, and I was in one of them. My appendix had burst, and I was—I had this really a major job opportunity coming up, a big, big, big one. And I healed from the burst appendix, but it, I'd gotten a, an infection from it, so I was back in the hospital. Here, I told the people who were promoting me, and they'd spent a lot of money, that I was going to recover from the appendectomy in time. I didn't have the guts to tell them about the infection. And uh, I was really sweating it, and I realized even if I was allowed to go, I'd been so sick I hadn't prepared. I was to teach a workshop, and I hadn't prepared it. And I was really sweating it. And all of a sudden, this warmth came over me, and this interior voice said, when have you ever not, ever not had everything you needed to do what I put you here to do? I said, I thought about it for a split second, and I said, never. And and I had a legal pad, and about an hour later, I, I wrote the outline for that workshop. That's at least 10 years ago, and I've taught it. And the basic workshop, the basic outline that I wrote on a legal pad, I still use. So that's my higher power. Did I go through a, a process of blame and forgiveness for my body? Uh, not just with overeating, but with cancer. Uh, I, I'll tell you. One thing, when I was when I was diagnosed with cancer, I really, I decided I would be a warrior, and I am not a warrior. I just don't have it in me, you know. People say you can fight this, you can lick it, and and I did. I went on the most restrict. I went to see a nutritionist, and at 57, I had less body fat, I think probably than ever in my life. And I was measuring out six little meals a day. I talked to my sponsor about that. It's the only time I didn't have three. And I, and I, it was turkey, chicken, fish, green beans, broccoli, asparagus, not even fruit, this guy said, and supplements like you can't imagine. And then one day, it occurred to me, if I, this is the way it's going to be the rest of my life, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And, because uh, there was no joy in it. It was just all this discipline. So I let go and I turned that over. I turned that over. I, um, like, being a compulsive, like the disease of compulsive overeating, cancer has been an extraordinary teacher. Um, one of the experiences I had with my higher power before, before I was in program, and I know before cancer, was uh, I had this, this um, realization for me that everything's a gift. And so I had to figure out where the gift was. Where the, and I, the gift here is humility, it's fellowship, uh, it's support. The gift of, of cancer was, um, you hear that word and you think, well, I may not be here next year. 
And I remember vividly, there was a play I wanted to see in New York, and I had no reason to go to New York, and it was an actor I wanted to see, and I thought, well, you may not be here next year. Why don't you fly to New York and see it? And I did. And uh, I live my life now based on saying yes to what supports me and not thinking I have to behave much about what doesn't. Uh, my, my career has changed completely as a direct result of steps I took to deal with the cancer. As a result of the steps I take, I've been, I've been gifted with trips all over the world to places I never dreamt I could go. And friendships. And, and uh, so if I have patience, I can find the gift and grace in almost anything. I hope I can find it in everything, and I hope I'm not tested too much. But uh, if I can find it in overeating and cancer, I suspect I'll be able to find it other places. So, okay. What has my program done for my career? The first smart-ass answer that comes to mind is I didn't kill that boss. Uh, that's, I, I wanted to. I wanted to. I finally had the guts to trust my Howard power and leave that job for a job that didn't pay as well. And I had the courage to go in and walk out and listen to her rage and insults. Um, that's one thing. What it does, I teach now and I teach workshops and, um, and they're spiritually based, a lot of them. And I can't teach a workshop without the spirituality of the 12 steps coming in some way or another. Because of my background, I, I'm able to see and relate the 12 steps to spiritual traditions that go back to the beginning of time, really. I mean, that, the, the fundamentals of this program have, have led me to believe it's the most extraordinary spiritual thing of the 20th century and continues to be. And when I think of, I, I have a friend who says, you know, God hardly ever shows up in four seasons. He tends to show up in barns and stables, and I think in Akron. You know, uh, if you were going to write a book about where is grace and God going to show up, you pro and you were a novelist, you probably wouldn't think Akron. <laughs> <laughs> or a stable in Bethlehem or any of that stuff. But the fact that two drunks in Akron, Ohio, have enriched my life, and they were there recently enough that I can really follow it, and it hasn't been entirely mythologized yet, that I can see the reality of that. Um, I can relate that to people who don't, so they can see the power of spirit and the power of surrender and the power of all those things. And I don't teach the 12 steps, but I can't. I, I started being open about it because at the break somebody would say, invariably, are you a friend of Bill's? And so I'd say, yeah, I am. And so, uh, so that has really informed it, it, this, this, the steps, the program, the literature, they're in my DNA now. I want them to be in my food more. And they have been lately. But I have to tell you this, this is probably blasphemy. If I never lost another pound. Um, and I would like to. If my clothes never fit the way I would like them to fit again. I would wake up every morning still grateful for everything this has given me. I better stop there. <laughs>